Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, no housekeeping today. Today I'm speaking with Nina Schick. Nina is an author and broadcaster who specializes in how technology and artificial intelligence are reshaping society. She has advised global leaders in many countries, including Joe Biden, and she's a regular contributor to Bloomberg, Sky, CNN, and the BBC. Nina speaks seven languages and holds degrees from Cambridge University and University College London. And her new book is Deep Fakes, which explores the terrain we're about to discuss. We talk about the epidemic of misinformation and disinformation in our society now and the coming problem of deep fakes, which is, when you imagine it in detail, fairly alarming. We get into the history of Russian active measures against the West, the weaponization of the migrant crisis in Europe, Russian targeting of the African American community, Trump and the rise of political cynicism, QAnon, the prospect of violence surrounding the presidential election, and other topics. Anyway, this is all scary stuff, but Nina is a great guide through this wilderness. And now I bring you Nina Schick. I am here with Nina Schick. Nina, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Sam. We have a, a lot to talk about. You have, you have a very interesting background, which I think suggests many common interests and um, kind of overlapping life trajectories. I don't think we're going to be able to get into that because you, you, you have produced so many urgent matters in your, in your recent book that we need to talk about. But to get started here, what, what is your background and personally, but also just what you're focusing on these days that gives you a, an expertise on the topics we're going to talk about? Well, it's a really interesting and crazy story, one that could only happen in the 21st century. I'm half German and I'm half Nepalese. My father was a German criminal defense lawyer who in the 70s decided, you know, he was going to seek spirituality and travel east and took his mm -hmm. car, threw in a few books and did that big journey that a lot of young people did back in the 70s through Afghanistan, India, and then ended up in Nepal, which at this time was still this hermetic kingdom. Fell in love with it and met my mother there briefly after a decade or so. And basically, my mother came from this totally different universe. She grew up in Nepal as a member of this community in a, a Himalayan tribe, had no running water, electricity, shoes when she was growing up. And because she met my father, you know, they fell in love and they kind of decided to have us, my brother and myself. And I grew up in Kathmandu in the 80s and the 90s. And then eventually I came to the UK to go to university and I went to Cambridge and UCL. And my kind of discipline is really in history and politics. I've always been fascinated by history and politics. And especially at this time when the geopolitical sands seem to be shifting in such a dramatic way. So my career over the last 10 years has really been working at the heart of Westminster as a policy analyst, a journalist, and an advisor on some of the key geopolitical shifts around the European Union. So this includes the kind of what happened with Russia and the invasion of Ukraine in 2013, subsequently the EU's migrant crisis in 2015. Then, obviously, I was very tied into the work here in the UK around Brexit. I was helping to advise the government on that in 2016. 
Then, of course, the election of Trump in 2016. Then I went on to advise Emmanuel Macron's campaign, which was also interestingly hacked by the Russians. And finally, I got to a point in 2018 where I was working with the former NATO Secretary General, and he covened a group of global leaders, which included Joe Biden. And he wanted to look at how the 2020 election might be impacted by what we had seen in 2016 and how the new kind of threats were emerging. And this is really where I came to deep fakes. And that is really the starting point for my book. So I have this background in geopolitics, politics, information warfare. And my area of interest is really how the exponential changes in technology and particularly in AI are rewriting not only politics, but society at large as well. So yeah, you are a citizen of the world. I mean, that's quite amazing. Did, did you grow up speaking Nepali and German? Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up with um, four languages. <laughs> so ne Nepali, German, Tamang, because my mother is from an ethnic minority group in Nepal, which actually is closely related to Tibetans. So Tamang is a completely different language. So Nepali, German, Tamang, and Hindi, because everybody in Nepal speaks Hindi. Yeah. And India is yeah. the big brother on the border. So that was, you know, it's something I wish I could give my daughter as well. I, I live in the UK now, and most people in the UK, you know, we speak English. <laughs> That's well, it. Yeah, all too well, I can hear. So you're, uh, you're, your English betrays none of that colorful backstory. It's quite amazing. So yeah, I, I know we have common interests in the kinds of um, things that brought your father to Nepal in the first place, and you know, meditation and forming a philosophy of life that uh, is aimed at uh, deeper levels of well-being than, than is often attained by people. But we have such a colossal mess to clean up in our society now with, with how our information ecosystem has been polluted and deranged that I think we're just going to, you know, we'll do another podcast on the happy talk of what we could share when we um, get past these increasingly terrifying dangers and self-inflicted wounds. I mean, it's really, it's, it's amazing to see how much of this is our own doing. And we'll talk about bad actors and people who are consciously using our technology against us to really destroy the possibility of, of living in an open society. But so much of this is a matter of our entertaining ourselves into a kind of collective madness and what seems like it could be a, you know, a coming social collapse. I realize that if you're not in touch with these trends, you know, if anyone in the audience who isn't, this kind of language coming from me or anyone else can sound hyperbolic, but we're really going over some kind of precipice here with respect to our ability to understand what's going on in the world and to converge on, on a common picture of, of a shared reality, because we're in the midst of an information war, and it's being waged against democratic societies by adversaries like Russia and China, but it's also a civil war that's being waged by factions within our society, and there, there are various political cults, and then there's the president of the United States himself. All of this is happening on the back of and, and facilitating an utter collapse of trust in institutions and a global decline in democracy. And again, we've built the, the very tools of our derangement ourselves. And in particular, I'm talking about social media here. Yeah, so your book goes into this, and it's 
organized around this this new piece of technology that we call deep fakes, and the book is deep fakes. The coming infocalypse, which um, that's not your coinage. It, it on the page is is very easy to parse. When you say it, it's hard to understand what's being said there. But it's really you're talking about an information apocalypse. Just remind people what deep fakes are and suggest what's at stake here in terms of of how difficult it could be to make sense of our world in the presence of this technology. Yes, absolutely. So a deep fake is a type of synthetic media. And what synthetic media essentially is, is any type of media. It can be an image, it can be a video, it can be a text that is generated by AI. And this ability of AI to generate fake or synthetic media is really, really nascent. We're only at the very, very beginning of the synthetic media revolution. Um, It was only probably in about the last four or five years that this has been possible. And for the last two years that we've been seeing how the real world applications of this have been leaching out from beyond the AI research community. So the first thing to say about synthetic media is that it is completely going to transform how we perceive the world. Because in future, all media is going to be synthetic because it means that Anybody can create content to a degree of fidelity that is only possible for Hollywood studios right now, right? And they can do this for little to no cost using apps or software, various interfaces, which will make it so accessible to to anyone. And the reason why this is so interesting, another reason why synthetic media is so interesting is until now, the best kind of computer effects, CGI, you still can't quite get humans right. So when you use CGI to do effects where you're trying to create robotic humans, it still doesn't look like it's called, you know, uncanny valley. But it turns out that AI, when you train your machine learning systems with enough data, they're really, really good at generating fake humans or synthetic humans, both in images. I mean, and when it comes to generating fake human faces, so images, still images, it's already perfected that. And if you want to kind of test that, you can go and look at thispersondoesnotexist.com. Every time you refresh the page, you'll see a new human face that to the human eye, to you or, or me, Sam, we'll look at that and we'll think that's an authentic human. Whereas that is just something that's generated by AI, that human literally doesn't exist. And also now increasingly in other types of media like audio and film. So... I could take essentially a clip of a recording with you, Sam, and I could use that to train my machine learning system. And then I can synthesize your voice. So I can literally hijack your biometrics. I can take your voice, synthesize it, get my AI kind of machine learning system to recreate that. I can do the same with your digital likeness. Obviously, this is going to have tremendous commercial applications. Entire industries are going to be transformed. For example, corporate communications advertising, the future of all movies, video games. But this is also the most potent form of mis- and disinformation, which you're democratizing for almost anyone in the world at a time when our information ecosystem has already become increasingly dangerous and corrupt. So the first thing I'd say about synthetic media is it is actually just heralding this tremendous revolution in the way that we communicate. The second thing I'd say is that it's coming at a time when we've had 
lots of changes in our information ecosystem over the past 30 years. So, you know, that society hasn't been able to keep up with from the internet to social media to smartphones. And this is just the next step in that. And then the final thing, this is where I come to deep fakes, is that this field is still so nascent and emerging that the taxonomy around it is completely undecided yet. Mm. And as I already kind of pointed out or touched upon, there will be legitimate use cases for synthetic media. And this is one of the reason, reasons why this cat is out of the bag. There's no way we're putting it back in because there's so much investment in the kind of commercial use cases ever since. I think there's almost 200 companies now that are working exclusively on generating synthetic media. So we mm. have to distinguish between the legitimate use cases of synthetic media and how we draw the line. So I very broad brush in my book say that the use and intent behind synthetic media really matters in how we define it. So I refer to deep fake as when a piece of synthetic media is used as a piece of mis or disinformation. And, you know, there is so much more that you could delve into there with regards to the kind of the ethical implications and the taxonomy. But broadly speaking, that's how I define it. And that's my definition between synthetic media and deep fakes. Mm. Well, so I mean, as you point out, all of this would be good, clean fun if it weren't for the fact that we know there are people intent upon spreading misinformation and disinformation and doing it with a truly sinister political purpose. I mean, not, not just for amusement, although that can be harmful enough. It, it's something that state actors and people internal to, to various states are going to leverage to further divide society from itself and increase political polarization. But it would, it's amazing that it is so promising in the fun department that we can't possibly even contemplate putting this cat back in the bag. I mean, it's just, that's the problem we're, we're seeing on all fronts. I mean, it, it, so it is with social media. So mm -hmm. it is with the, the ad revenue model that is selecting for so many of, of its harmful effects. I mean, we just can't break the spell wherein people want the cheapest, most fun media, and they want it endlessly. And yet the, the harms that are accruing are so large that it's, uh, it's amazing the just to see that there's just no, there's no handhold here whereby we can resist our slide toward the precipice. Just to underscore how quickly this technology is developing, in your book, you point out what happened with the once uh, uh, Martin Scorsese released his film, The Irishman, which had this exceedingly expensive and laborious process of trying to de-age its principal actors, you know, Robert De Niro and, and Joe Pesci. And that was met with something like um, derision for the, the imperfection of, of what was achieved there. Again, a great cost. And then very, very quickly, someone on YouTube using free software did a, a, a nearly perfect de-aging of the same film. It's just amazing what, what's happening here. And again, these tools are going to be free, right? I mean, they're already free, and, and ultimately, the best tools will be free. Absolutely. So you already have various kind of software platforms online. So the barriers to entry have come down tremendously. Right now, if you wanted to make a convincing deepfake a video, you would still need to have some knowledge, some knowledge of machine learning, but you wouldn't have to be an AI expert by any means. 
But already now we have apps that allow people to do certain things like swap their faces into scenes. For example, Reface. I don't know if you've come across that app. I don't know how old your children are, but if you have a, a teenager, you've probably come across it. You can basically put your own face into a popular scene from a film like Titanic or something. This is using the power of synthetic media. But experts who I speak to on the generation side, because it's so hugely exciting to people who are generating synthetic media, think that by the end of the decade, any YouTuber, any teenager will have the ability to create special effects in film that are better than anything a Hollywood studio can do now. And that's really why I put that anecdote about the Irishman into the book, because it just demonstrates the power of synthetic media. I mean, Scorsese was working on this project from 2015. He filmed with a special three-rig camera. He had this best special effects artist, post-production work, multi-million dollar budget, and still the effect at the end wasn't that convincing. It didn't look quite right. And now one YouTuber, free software, takes a clip from Scorsese's film in 2020. So Scorsese's film came out in 2019. This year, he can already create something that's far more, when you look at it, it looks far more realistic than what Scorsese did. This is just in the realm of video. As I already mentioned, with images, it can already do it perfectly. There is also the case of audio. There is another YouTuber, for example, who, um, because a lot of the kind of early pieces of synthetic media have sprung up on YouTube, there is a, a YouTuber called Vocal Synthesis who uses an open sourced AI model to train, trained on celebrities' voices. So he can, something that he's done that's gotten many, many views on YouTube is he's literally taken audio clips of dead presidents and then made them rap NWA's Fuck the Police, right? Ronald Reagan, mm. FDR. He, very interesting, this is a, a, an indicator of how complex these challenges are going to be to navigate in future. Because another thing that he did was he took Jay-Z's voice and made him re rap, recite Shakespeare's To Be or Not To Be. And interestingly, Jay-Z's record label filed a copyright infringement claim against him and made him kind of take it down. But this is really just a forebear of the kind of battles we're going to see when any anonymous user this is, can take your likeness, can take your biometrics and make you say or do things that you never did. And of course, this is disastrous to any liberal democratic model, because in a world where anything can be faked, everyone becomes a target. But even more than that, if anything can be faked, including evidence that we today see as an extension of our own reality, and I say evidence in quotation marks, video, film, audio, then everything can also be denied. So the very basis of what is reality starts to become corroded. Of course, reality itself remains. It's just that our perception of reality starts to become increasingly clouded. So what are we going to do about this? Again, we're going, to, we're going to get into all of the evidence of just how aggressively this will be used, given everything else that's been happening in our world. We'll talk about Russia and Trump and QAnon and other problems here. But many of us can dimly remember you know, 20 years ago before COVID, when the Bush audio tape dropped and Trump 
sort of attempted to deny that the audio was real of him on the bus, but we were not yet in the presence of such widespread use of deepfake technology that anyone was even tempted to believe him. We knew the audio was real. Now, apparently, it didn't matter, given how corrupted our, our sense of everything had become by that point politically. But we could see the resort to claiming fakery that w will be relied upon by everyone and anyone who is committed to lying, because there'll be so much of it around that really it's, you know, it will be only be charitable to extend the benefit of the doubt to people who say, listen, that, that wasn't me. That's just a perfect simulacrum of my voice and even my face. But you actually can't believe your eyes and ears at this point. I would never say such a thing. In any of your conversations with experts on this topic, are any of them hopeful that we will be able to figure out how to put a watermark on digital media in such a way that we will understand its provenance and be able to get to ground truth when it matters? So I think the problem of what we do about it is so huge that ultimately we can only fight the corroding information ecosystem by building society-wide resilience. But the solutions, if you want to term it that way, broadly fit into two categories. The first are the kind of technical solutions. So because synthetic media is going to become ubiquitous, and we as humans will not be able to discern because of the fidelity, the quality, whether it's real or fake. So you can't rely on digital forensics in the sense that somebody goes through and clicks and looks at each media and decides, oh, are the eyes blinking correctly? Do the ears look a little bit blurred? Because these are what we do now, right? Because the generation side of synthetic media is still so nascent. So we're not going to be able to do that. Second, the sheer volume when you talk about at the scale at which you can generate synthetic media means that humans are never going to be able to go through it all, never going to be able to fact check each piece of media. So we have to rely on building the AI software to detect, for example, deep fakes. And right now there is an interest and increasingly there are certain experts and groups who are putting money into being able to detect deep fakes. However, the problem is because of the adversarial nature of the AI and the way that it's trained, every time you build a detector that's good enough to, to detect the fake, the generation model can also become stronger. So you're in mm. this never-ending game of cat and mouse where you, know, the, you, you keep on having to build better detectors. And also given the various different models and ways in which the fakes can be generated, there's never going to be a one-size-fits-all model. There's a hypothetical question, which is open still in the AI research community, about whether or not the fakes can become so sophisticated. So we already know they, they're going to be humans. They already basically do. But is there a point where the fakes become so sophisticated that even AI and EI detector can never detect in the DNA of that fake that it's actually a piece of synthetic media? We don't know yet is the answer to that. But I will say that there is far more research going into the generation side because like so much in terms of the information ecosystem, the architecture of the information ecosystem in the information age 
it has been driven by this almost utopian flawed vision of how these technologies will be in serving an unmitigated good for humanity without thinking about how they might amplify the worst sides of human intention as well. The second side, and you touched upon that, is building provenance architecture into the information ecosystem. So basically embedding right into the hardware of devices, whether that's a camera, a mobile phone, the authenticity watermark to prove that that piece of media is authentic. You can track it throughout its life to show that it hasn't been tampered with or edited. And this is something that, for example, Adobe is working on along with the, in, in, on its content initiative, authenticity initiative. So there are technical solutions underway, both inside in terms of the detection and the provenance side of the problem. However, ultimately, this is a human problem to the extent that disinformation or bad information didn't just come about at the turn of the millennium. It's just that we have never seen it at this scale. We have never seen it this potent. And we have never, ever been able to see to have it as accessible as it is now. So ultimately, this is a human problem. There's no way we can deal with the challenges of our corroding information ecosystem without talking about human, quote unquote, solutions. How do we prepare society for this new reality? And we are way behind. We're always reactive. Our reactions are always piecemeal. And the biggest problem is the information ecosystem has become corrupt to the extent that we can't even identify what the real risks are, right? We're too busy fighting each other about other things mm. without seeing what the real existential risk is here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that is a very symptom of the problem itself, the fact that we can't even agree on the nature of the problem. Uh, there's so much disinformation in the air. It makes me think that one solution to part of the problem, I don't think it captures all of it, but certainly some of the most pressing parts of it could be solved if we had lie detection technology that we could actually rely on. Just imagine we had real-time lie detection, and you could go to the source. You know, if some awful piece of audio emerged from me, and it purported to be a you know, part of my podcast, uh, where I said something, you know, re reputation canceling, uh, and I said, well, that's a fake, uh, that wasn't me. The only way to resolve that would be to tell whether I'm lying or not. We're forcing ourselves into a position where it's going to be a kind of emergency not to be able to tell with real confidence whether or not somebody is, is lying. So I think we're going to, in addition to the arms race between deep fakes and deep fake identifying AI, I think uh, this could inspire a, a lie detection arms race because I mean, there's so many other reasons why we would want to be able to detect people who are lying. Having just watched the presidential and vice presidential debates in America, one could see that uh, the utility of having a red light go off over someone's head when, when uh, he or she knows that he or she is lying. But um, if we can't trust people, and we can't trust the evidence of our senses when we have media of them saying and doing things convincingly delivered to us in torrents, it's hard to see how we don't drift off into some horrifically dystopian dream world of our own confection. Absolutely. And this is really why, you know, I wrote the book. I wrote it in a way that was very accessible to anyone to pick up and zoom through an afternoon. Because I think 
without this conceptual framework where we can connect everything from Russian disinformation to the increasingly partisan political divide in the United States, but also around the rest of the Western world, and understanding how now, with the age of coming, with the age of synthetic media upon us, how our entire perception of the world is going to be changed in a way that is completely unprecedented, how we can be manipulated in the age of information where we had assumed that once we have access to this much information that, you know, surely progress is inevitable, but to actually understand how the information ecosystem itself has become corrupt, I think is the first step. And to be honest with you, I do tend to think that things will probably get worse before they get better. And I think the US election is a great case study of that because it's almost no matter the outcome, right? Let's say that Trump loses and he loses by large margin. You know that he could still refuse to go, even if the Secret Service will come and, you know, take his bags and ask him, please, Mr. Trump, there's the door. He has this influence now where a lot of his followers genuinely believe that he is, you know, the, the, the this kind of savior of America. And if he asks them to take arms and take to the streets. I mean, this is literally already happening right now, right? You have armed insurrection, militia kind of patrolling the streets of the United States on both the left and the right for their political grievances. So if Biden wins, let's say Trump goes quietly and Biden wins, well, then you still haven't addressed the bigger problem of the infocalypse, where the information ecosystem has become so corrupt and so corroded and the synthetic media revolution is still upon us. So I, okay, I'm hopeful that we still have time to address this because, like I said, this technology is so nascent. We can still try to take some kind of action in terms of what's the ethical framework? How are we going to adjudicate the use of synthetic media? How can we digitally educate the public about the risks of synthetic media? But it is a ticking time bomb and the window is short. As if to underscore your, your last point, at the time we're speaking here, there's a, there's a headline now circulating that 13 men were just arrested, including seven members of a right-wing militia plotting to kidnap the Democratic governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, for the purposes of inciting a civil war. One can only imagine the kind of information diet of these uh, militia members. But this is the kind of thing that gets engineered by crazy information and, and pseudo-facts being spread on social media. And this is the kind of thing that when even delivered by a mainstream news channel, one now has to pause uh, and wonder whether or not it's even true, because there's been such a breakdown of trust in, in journalism. And there's so many cries of fake news, both cynical and increasingly real, that it's just we're just dealing with a circumstance of such informational pollution. Let's talk about Russia's role in all of this, because Russia has a history of prosecuting what they call active measures against us. And, and we really have, for a long time, been in, in the midst of an information war, which is essentially a psychological war. And Russia is increasingly expert at exploiting the divisions in our society, especially racial divisions. So maybe you can summarize some of this history. 
Yeah, I mean, I start my book with Russia because I, my career intersected a lot with what Russia was doing in Ukraine in 2014 and the kind of information war they fought around the annexation of Crimea and eastern Ukraine, where they basically denied that it was happening at all. And the same with the shooting down of MH17. This was the Malaysian aircraft that was shot down over eastern Ukraine which now has been proven to have been by Russian military services. But at the time, they were saying this you know, had nothing to do with them and that this was pro-Russian Ukrainian separatists who, who had shot down the airliner. So what Russia did with information warfare around Ukraine, Crimea, around Europe in 2015, when Putin and Assad stepped up their bombardment of civilians in Syria, unleashing this mass migration, which basically led to the EU's migrant crisis five years ago. I don't know if you remember those images of yeah. people just arriving at the shores, you know, and some of them were refugees, but as we now know, you know, a lot of them were, there were also terrorists, economic migrants, and how that almost tore Europe apart and the information war that Russia fought around those events where they perpetrated these stories about, for example, girls in Germany who had been raped by, supposedly raped by arriving migrants. And stories like this legitimately did happen, but this story was mm. completely planted. So it's dividing the line, you know, it's blurring the line between what's real and fake. But what was also very interesting for me was that I worked on or I studied and I worked on the Russian information operations around the US election in 2016. And the first thing to say about that is, to me, it's an, it's a, we can see how corrupt the information ecosystem has become to the extent that those information operations have become a completely partisan event in America, right? Some people say that Russia is behind everything, and others deny that Russia did anything at all. And this is just mm. nonsense. You know, for sure, the Russians intervened in the 2016 election, and they continue to intervene in US politics to this day. And I suppose what was very interesting to me about what Russia was doing was how this information warfare strategy, which is old, and it goes all the way back to the Cold War, was becoming increasingly potent with the weapons of this modern information ecosystem. And one of those was social media. What they did in Ukraine and then Europe around the migrant crisis and then around the US election was influence operations on social media, where they actually posed, in the case of the United States, as authentic Americans. And then they, over years, by the way, this wasn't just them getting involved in the weeks running up to the election. They started their influence operations in the United States in 2013. They built up these tribal communities on social media and built up, well, basically played identity politics, built up their pride in their distinct identity. And interestingly, this wasn't just Russians targeting you know, right-wing kind of Trump supporters. They did it across the political spectrum. And as a matter of fact, they disproportionately focused on the African-American community. So they built these fake groups, pages, communities, where you, in, you imbue them with your distinct pride in your distinct identity. 
And then as we got closer to the election, those groups were then sporadically injected with lots of political grievances, some of them legitimate, to make these groups feel alienated from the mainstream. And again, the primary focus of their influence operations on social media was the African-American community who they were basically targeting so that they felt so disenfranchised and disconnected from Hillary, America at large, that they wouldn't go and vote in the election, right? And what has happened now, four years later, is that those operations are still ongoing, but they've become far more sophisticated. So in 2016, it might have been a, a troll farm in St. Petersburg. But in 2020, one operation that was earlier this year, which was revealed through CNN, Twitter, Facebook, a joint investigation, was that the Russian agency, which, was in charge, which is in charge of the social media operations, it's called the Internet Research Agency, IRA, they had basically outsourced their work to Ghana. They had set up what, was, what looked ostensibly like a legitimate human rights organization. They had hired employees in Ghana, real authentic Ghanaians, and then told them, you know, you're going to have to kind of post, build these groups and communities. And here is basically a, the same memes, the same ideas that they had used in 2016, they were basically recycling in 2020. So I start with Russia because what is really interesting is that their strategy of information warfare is actually something called, is, is, is a phenomenon where they flood the zone with a lot of information, bad information across the political spectrum. So they're not just targeting, you know, Trump voters, for example. And this chaos, this bad information, this chaotic information has the effect where it's called censor, they do censorship through noise. So this chaotic, bad information overload gets to the point where we can't make decisions in our own interest of protecting ourselves, our country, our community. And that very spirit of information warfare has come to characterize the entire information ecosystem. I mean, I start with Russia, I map out how their tactics are far more potent, but you cannot talk about the corrosion of the information ecosystem without recognizing that the same chaotic spirit has come to imbue our homegrown debate as well. So I actually think, you know, of course, the Russians are intervening in the US election in 2020. What's also very interesting is that other rogue and authoritarian states around the world are looking at what Russia is doing and copying them. China is becoming more like Russia. But this is also happening at home. And arguably, the domestic disinformation, misinformation, and information disorder is far more harmful than anything that foreign actors are doing. Yeah, I, I, I want to cover some of that ground again, because it's easy not to understand at first pass just how sinister and insidious this all is. Because the fact that we can't agree as a society that Russia interfered in the 2016 presidential election is one of the greatest triumphs of the Russian interference in our information ecosystem. The fact that, that you have people on the left over-ascribing to Russian influence causality, and you have people on the right denying any interference in the first place, and the fact that each side can sleep soundly at night convinced that the other side is totally wrong, 
that is itself a symptom of how polluted our information space has become. It's a kind of singularity on the landscape where everything is now falling into it, and it's it's happening based on a, the dynamics you just sketched out. Whereas you, if you mingle lies of any size and consequence with enough truths and half truths, or you know background facts that suggest a plausibility to these lies, or at least you can't you can't ever ascertain what's true, it leads to a kind of epistemological breakdown and a cynicism that is the goal of this entire enterprise. It's not merely to misinform people, which is to say have them believe things that are false. It is to break people's commitment to being informed at all because they realize how hopeless it is. And so we all just tune out and go about our lives being manipulated to who knows what end. So, you know, some of the history which you go through in your book is relates to the fact that, you know, that for long ago, long before they had any tools really to work with, uh, you know, certainly didn't have social media, the Russians planted the story that AIDS was a, was <clears> essentially a bioweapon cooked up in a U.S. lab, uh, you know, with, with the purpose of performing a genocide on the black community. And they targeted the black community with this lie. And to this day, you know, a disproportionate number of people in the black community in the U.S., believe that AIDS was made in a lab for the purpose of, you know, wiping out black people. But the reason why that was so clever is because it has an air of plausibility to it, given the history of the Tuskegee experiments, the syphilis experiments, where African Americans who had syphilis were studied and not given the cure, even once the cure, penicillin, emerged. They were then, you know, studied uh, to the end of their lives with what amounted to the, the ethical equivalent of the, the Nazi cold water experiments, trying to see the, the effects of tertiary syphilis on people. I mean, it was an absolutely appalling history, and it's in the context of that history that you can make up new allegations that should seem patently insane, they're so evil, but they don't seem patently insane given the points of contact to a surrounding reality that that is fact based and and so it is with you know the the current leveraging of identity politics in the US where they create black lives matter facebook groups that are fake and they can they, you know I, th- I think there's there was one protest in times square that had like 5000 or 10000 people show up and it was completely fake i mean that the organizers were fake you know they were were russians there was no man on the ground who was actually a real leader of this thing. And people went to this protest never realizing that they were characters in, in somebody's dreamscape. Absolutely. This is why it is so dastardly. And as you pointed out, the Russians or even the Soviets going back to the Cold War very quickly identified that race relations is a sore point for the United States. And they abuse that to great effect. And the Operation Infection, the lie that you already correctly pointed out, that the CIA invented the HIV virus as a way to kill African-Americans, was something that in the 1980s took about 10 years to go viral. But when it did, oh boy, did it grab a hold of the imagination to the extent that it still plays a challenge when you're trying to deal with HIV public health policy today, where you have 
communities, African-American communities, who disproportionately believe that the HIV virus is somehow connected to a government plan to commit a genocide. And in 2016, I suppose what happened is that the, 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 the strategy was the same, right? We want to play identity politics. We want to hit the United States where it hurts. We know that race is the dividing factor. But in 2016, it became so much more powerful because Operation Infection, the HIV lie, was a single lie. Whereas in 2016 and what's happening in 2020 is numerous groups, communities, pages, where it's not only about spreading one lie, but it's actually about entrenching tribal divisions, entrenching identity politics. And in the context of what's happened in 2020, very interesting, some of the other kind of information operations that have come out that have been exposed is unsurprisingly, given your interest, uh, Sam, and kind of the culture wars and wokeness, is that a lot of kind of unemployed American journalists who had lost their job due to COVID were now working for a kind of social justice oriented left wing news, news network in favor of BLM. And it turned out that actually that entire network was fabricated and the Russians were behind it. So mm. these unwitting Americans who genuinely have good intentions are being co-opted into something that is actually being run by Russian intelligence. And I suppose with our information ecosystem right now, it's so much easier to actually infiltrate public life in the United States in a way that wouldn't have been possible in the 1980s. So we, can't, we don't even know, well, we're starting to see the impact of these operations on society. That's not to say that, you know, the Russians created the problems with race. Of course not. But do they exploit them? Absolutely. And are other countries also other rogue and authoritarian nation states seeking to do the same? Absolutely. Russia is the best at this kind of information warfare, but other countries are learning quickly. And what's been really interesting for me to watch is, for example, how China has taken an aggressive new interest in pursuing similar disinformation campaigns in Western information spaces. This was something that they didn't do until about last year when the protest started in Hong Kong, and then obviously this year with, with COVID. I think you say in your book that Russian television, RT, is the most watched news channel on YouTube? Yes, it is. So this is another example to me of how quick they were to recognize that the architecture of this new information ecosystem, right, which developed around the turn of the millennium, that's characterized by the internet, smartphones, and social media is something that could be used as a tool of influence and disinformation. With RT, they got onto RT very, very quickly, making, by the way, a lot of the content that RT produces is excellent journalism. And that's why it's so insidious, because 80% of it is, you know, great packages, credible journalists. When they launched, they actually poached a lot of journalists from the CNN and the BBC. But the other 20 to 10% is just disinformation. And you saw that very, very strongly around the war in Ukraine when they just simply denied that, you know, they were involved at all. And all intelligence services, any military personnel knew that this was an outright lie. The editor-in-chief of RT gave an, ast an astounding interview in 2014 where she said, 
the job of RT is to fight information warfare against the whole West for Russia. So they have just been very quick at recognizing, and this is for obvious historic reasons, because they've done this since the Cold War, how information is basically a weapon and a way to punch above your geopolitical weight. And I suppose if you think about the future of warfare, increasingly it's going to be fought in these information spaces, unless it's going to be about green men and tanks invading borders, mm -hmm. going crossing borders. Yeah, the, the migrant crisis in Europe was really an incredible episode because here Russia actually weaponized migration itself. I mean, they, they had control or, or some degree of control over what was happening in Syria, right? So they could target innocents in Syria, making uh, life increasingly intolerable, knowing that that would increase migration to Europe. And then knowing that the character of the problems that would ensue, I mean, the real problem, there are, as you pointed out, there actually were terrorists, you know, you know jihadists who came a, a, along with that flow of genuine refugees. And there were rapes and crimes committed by some subset of the refugees who arrived in, in various countries in Europe. But they knew they could amplify the toxicity of all of that with fake news. As you say, they just they they made up uh, various stories. One of a of a thirteen year old in Germany getting gang raped by migrants, and they can play with both sides of this diabolical machinery here, and essentially make the political polarization in in Europe completely unsustainable. And you know, Brexit was at least in part caused by some of these concerns. How do you view the the future of of Europe? itself in light of these trends? The future of Europe is very tenuous because I think what's at stake, and you have discussed this with so many of your other very illustrious guests, is, you know, the liberal democratic world order itself. And Europe as an idea does not work without the United States. And the increasing isolationism of the United States actually predating Trump, you know, going all the way back to Obama, is something that's been a devastating blow for Europe or the idea of a united Europe. Of course, the weaponization of migration by the Russians against the EU was extremely dastardly and one that dealt an existential blow to the EU with Brexit. And when this was unfolding, you know, it, when I remember, because obviously I was privy to military intelligence, but when I would talk about it, you know, that Russia was actually weaponizing migration flows by accelerating airstrikes in Syria, which unleashed this flow of refugees, but also because it was so uncontrolled, basically led to this mass migration to Europe, which included, as you pointed, as we've talked about, economic migrants, terrorists. There was no control. I remember going to Germany that summer and at the high point when kind of Merkel said that all migrants could come to Europe. And, you're, you know, this is obviously a legacy of German history. There were 10,000 people crossing every single day German, Germany's southern border. In the space of three months, Germany took a million, quote unquote, migrants and refugees. All of these people, when they arrived, there was no way of documenting. Lots of people didn't have any papers. So the long-term effects of that still have to play out. 
But we saw the immediate knee-jerk reaction or the immediate reaction of the electorate. Well, it helped propel forward a lot of the right-wing populists in Europe who, by the way, are in power through democratic means, but through, like what Orban of Hungary says, it's an illiberal democracy, right? One where liberalism, mm. it's an illiberal democracy, but they are still ruling democratically with this right-wing kind of nationalist view of what Europe is and what their countries are. But then it also was one of the fundamental blows when it came to Britain leaving the EU. I live in London. I worked on the Brexit issues for many years. I know a lot of the campaigners who worked on the Brexit side. And the fact that the migration crisis happened in 2015 was a boon to them because all of a sudden you could make very convincingly the argument because the idea was when Cameron campaigned to stay, stay in, he was like, people might want to go out with their hearts, but in their head, they'll do the sensible thing because for security and long-term prosperity, they'll believe that staying in the EU is the safer option. But because the migration crisis had happened, the Brexit campaigners were very effectively able to make the argument that remaining in the EU would be the more dangerous thing for the UK long-term. And had it not been for the migration crisis, the results of that referendum could have gone very, very differently. Mm. I mean, the facts of the matter were that even though you had this wave of millions of people arriving on the European continent, because the UK had a unique relationship with the rest of the EU, where they actually had a opt out of, out of EU asylum policy, they didn't have to take any of the new arrivals. The UK has this special opt out. But the narrative that was pushed was that, you know, these people are all going to come to the UK and they're going to, there was this poster of which Nigel Farage unleashed of like the rows and rows of people entitled Breaking Point. And that, without a doubt, was the thing that swung the referendum. Okay, well, let's talk about the, the problems in the US in particular now. And, and, you know, Trump is the crystal around which all of these constellate. I mean, the, the man is, it's embarrassing to have to keep reminding people of this, but it, it, this is just in fact true. Any, anything one can say in this vein about Trump is not an expression of partisan politics. What I say about Trump, I could never say about really any other Republican who, who I could name, right? So this is not an expression of politics at all in the end. But the, the man is just a, a living negation of the truth. I, I honestly think you could drop him on any spot on the Earth's surface and there wouldn't be another human being for a thousand miles who lies with the velocity that he does. I mean, he, he lies incessantly, extravagantly, and pointlessly. I mean, he, he tells lies that serve no other purpose but to remind us that he lies more than any other person we've ever seen. He's not even passing the Turing test as a human being with the way he disregards what every audience he steps in front of knows to be true. But as you point out in your book, this has been effective not because his supporters believe what he says most of the time. The situation is much more depressing than that. He's created a, a regime wherein people have just given up tracking the truth. They don't care that he's lying. They know, they know that he's lying, but 
as long as he's lying for them, or they imagine he's lying for them, that's just more, more theater. Absolutely. So this is, you know, the, the kind of sentiment expressed by the philosopher Hannah Arendt, where she says, if you completely become so cynical to the extent where, you know, you believe that the system is rigged against you, nothing's working for you, it doesn't matter if Trump is lying because everyone's lying anyway. So it's something to be cheered and heralded on that he's lying for them. You know, he's doing something for them. And this is something that very interestingly, Trump, insofar as there is some kind of method to his madness, he plays up to it because ultimately, if there is no truth or there is no pursuit, attempted pursuit of the truth, then the only thing that matters is power. And who has the power to control the narrative? And that is what Trump does exceedingly effectively. He binds his followers to him by using this narrative of them being unique and special and detract, oh, it's constantly fight, you know, basically waging information warfare against those who are against him and his supporters. Now, this is fundamentally incompatible, obviously, with the kind of liberal democratic society that we want to have because you're in this unintractable, never-ending, ceaseless information warfare where the winner takes all. And you see this, the manifestations of this, not only amongst Trump and his right-wing kind of, or, or Trump supporters, but increasingly you start to see this on the left as well. And these kind of trends that go away from truth, that go away from a shared notion of reality are in my view, an existential threat to liberal democracy. But I focus obviously on Trump because of the sheer influence he has as the president of the United States, but not only in the United States, but obviously the position he occupies is still that of the leader, quote unquote, of the free world. So whatever happens in the United States is a bellwether for the rest of the Western world. And it really matters. This is why when we talked just about the EU right now, it's difficult to see what the rest of the West or the EU will do without America on its side. And this is really the big geopolitical question of our time. Mm. What is going to happen to the Western world where it seems that our kind of liberal democratic politics is being assailed not only by foreign adversaries, but our own leaders at a time when the geopolitical shifts are changing and technology is completely redrawing not only politics, but society itself. So let's talk about some of Trump's most avid supporters, this group, which I think I've mentioned a few times on the podcast, but I really have not done a deep dive into what we know about them. What do we know at this point about QAnon? So QAnon is really, I would say, the first kind of global cult. And it starts all the way back to a single post on 4chan, these kind of right-wing kind of message threads, where somebody posited to be a Q, pretended to be Q, somebody who is working in the government, who said basically that what the conspiracy is about is that there is an elite cabal of pedophiles, including Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Obama, all the Dems, and that Donald Trump is engaged in a secret war against them and the deep state. And this was actually a perversion of something that 
we already saw coming out in 2016, and you, may, you might have spoken about it already, but Pizzagate. Mm. This idea, <laughs> basically, when the Russians hacked the DNC server and leaked um, the emails of John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's campaign chair, there were lots of references in these emails to cheese pizza. And on some of these kind of right-wing blog forums, cheese pizzas or the initials CP stood for child pornography. So these emails being littered with references to cheese pizza was then interpreted as references to child pornography. So from there on, this conspiracy took a life of its own. And it got to the extent, I mean, I remember listening to podcasts where we were discussing it in 2016. It was almost it was seen as a, as a funny phenomenon. How can people possibly believe this? But it got to the extent where the owner, <laughs> Comet Ping Pong Pizza in Washington, D.C. was stormed by an armed gunman because this pizza parlor, uh, the guy who owned it, had lots of links to kind of democratic operatives. And this pizza parlor then became the site, apparently, of where these satanic rituals against children was taking place. So this armed gunman who really believed the Pizzagate theory armed with with an AR-15 went into the pizza parlor, fired a few shots. And then when he found out, okay, there is there is no basement where these children were supposedly being abused, he gave himself up to the authorities. Now, that has now evolved from Pizzagate into a full on global, like I say, cult where they believe that Donald Trump is engaged in this secret battle against the deep state and this elite cabal of pedophiles. Very interestingly, it's not only in America, it's spread to Europe. There were marches just a few weeks ago in the UK. A lot of them actually, the the marches were predominantly women, where it's become this anti-COVID, deep state, pro-Trump, everything you imagine to be the worst kind of information, the worst kind of conspiracies all wrapped into one. And it was interesting when QAnon actually became classed as a domestic terror threat. And finally, finally, the social media companies have acted, right? Because a lot of this QAnon stuff was being spread on Facebook. It's only two days ago now where Facebook has said, you know what, we're going to take down these communities. And they've said stuff like this in the past and then not really done that much. But this time, it seems they've really cleaned up all the kind of QAnon communities on both Facebook and Instagram. Well, once again, we see this dynamic of there being a point of contact with a real problem. It gives a a substrate of plausibility to what should be on their face the, the least plausible allegations one has ever heard. There is, in fact, a problem with child sexual abuse and human trafficking and the video and and photographic evidence of this known as child pornography. I mean, I did a whole podcast with the New York Times writer Gabriel Dance about this. It's undercovered, it's underreported, the details are horrific, but the details do not include a global cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles who are, the members of which read like the the Vanity Fair, you know, Oscar party guest list, right? I mean, they, they believe that the Clintons and the Obamas and Oprah and Tom Hanks and Ellen DeGeneres and, I mean, all of these people, I think the Dalai Lama's in there, all of these people are pedophile rapists and Satanists. 
who are cannibals, actually, right? Isn't there, isn't there a cannibalistic aspect to this? Yes, this is the occult kind of rituals, cannibals, you name it. Everything is in there. And the, and the idea that, again, one struggles to convince oneself that people actually believe this stuff. I mean, is, do, you, do you think that people who, are, who are, consider themselves members of this cult, do you think they actually believe this, or this is, there's a kind of post-truth, cynical infatuation with, with noise mm. that's creating some of this phenomenon? I mean, there's, there's no doubt that there are people who are mentally ill who believe this hook, line, and sinker, and there's no doubt that some people, based on the kind of quasi-religious pseudo-awakening, have been convinced that you know, these facts are true. I mean, every, every one of our religions makes claims that are as preposterous as, as some of these, but it's just, what do you imagine to be the mind of a person who drives however many hours to a pizza parlor and armed with an AR-15, intent upon res- rescuing non-existent children who are being tortured in the basement, and he gets there and finds that there's not even a basement right, where the children could be, what do you imagine the cognitive dissonance of such a person, and why can that disconfirmation of this crazy thesis serve as the springboard to a much bigger hierophany about now a global and even more well-subscribed sex trafficking cult of pedophiles? No, I I believe that they legitimately believe it. And anecdotally and through various reports, you can kind of read the devastating stories of people who, whose you know, family members, mothers, uncles, aunts have fully signed up to the cult. So it literally is like being brainwashed and becoming a cult member. It actually reminds me a lot about your podcast where you've talked about fundamentalism, religious fundamentalism, and what it is if you, how your actions, which to an observer from the outside might look completely insane and make no sense at all, how if you interpret them through the lens of this is their worldview and they legitimately believe this to be true, then how these actions for you and I, but we can think laughable almost, it has to be some kind of cynical trolling because nobody could actually do this is very different if you take their word for it. They Mm. legitimately believe that this is true. And to me, this is just a broader indicator of how trust has completely broken down in society where people don't know what to trust anymore and are almost looking for some higher meaning, right? Because there is a psychological imperative here. If you can explain an increasingly cacophonous, dangerous world which doesn't seem to make sense, which is changing, and you can say, well, it is because this elite cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles are in charge, then suddenly that gives you a bit more certainty in the world again. It's very interesting. Again, I've been speaking to journalists today and over the past few days as this kind of Facebook removal of the QAnon community has taken place. And they are getting hate mail every day. The journalists who report on QAnon and the misinformation and disinformation signed up kind of supporters of QAnon, proper believers of Q. 
you know, are saying you're going to go to hell. And when the truth comes out, you're on the wrong side of history. You are allowing children to be abused. So, yeah, they they believe this. They hook, line and sinker. They are signed up. Well, it's going to be just our luck that we will find one Hollywood actor who is, in fact, a pedophile cannibal. And that that will seem to prove that everyone is is, uh, guilty until they can prove themselves innocent here. So what are you expecting going into the presidential election in the U.S.? If you had to bet, what does what does the election look like? What does no- November look like? How weird is weird going to prove itself to be? Well, I don't know who's going to win. I know the polls seem to indicate that you know it might be Biden. I certainly wouldn't be confident in making that that prediction. All I can say is that I think the, there is no bottom, right? There is still a lot worse to come, and I expect that there will be violence. I mean, just as we were speaking, you mentioned the the news alert you got about, what was it? A a Democratic governor's potentially... Yeah, in Michigan, yeah. Yeah. There actually already is violence, right? And And my fear is that... Well, two fears, really. If if Trump wins and there's four more years of Trump, what does that mean for the future of American democracy? It, it really is an existential threat to liberal democracy, not to, only to the U.S., but for the rest of the Western world. Um, if he doesn't win, you know, will he go quietly? Will, will he call upon an armed insurrection? We've already been seeing how the president himself, I mean, four years ago when I was looking at what Russia was doing in the 2016 election, we were talking about nightmare scenarios where a foreign state could release a piece of disinformation at a critical time that would undermine the integrity of the election. We don't need to really be worrying about that right now when the president of the United States himself has been for months saying that this is a rigged election, there's going to be fraud, that if he loses, it's because it was stolen from him, right? And if you look at polling right now, you can see it divides on partisan lines whether or not people actually think the election is going to be fair. There's no evidence to suggest that mail-in ballots are more subject to fraud, but I think it's something like 60% of Republican voters now, now believe that to be true. So the U.S. election to me really is a watershed moment not only, as I keep saying, not only for the United States, but really for the, West, the rest of the Western world. And if Biden does win, my God, does he, do, do I hope that he manages to focus attention on fixing the information ecosystem? Because we're now caught up in the polarizing currents of that, whether on the right, that's to do with kind of Trump and being a fully paid and signed up Trump supporter. And on the left, these increasing kind of moves towards identity politics, defining yourself by race. Those are the trends that I'm really worried about. This illiberal society that seems to be developing on both the left and the right that's, and the corrosion of the fabric of society, given that there seems to be no accepted or shared reality. How much of this is due, in your view, to the social media platforms themselves? I mean, if we could imagine just if this reached a kind of crisis point beyond the many points we've, we've already reached where we, we realize that what's happening on Facebook and Twitter 
and in in the YouTube algorithm has made life truly intolerable. If we could get Zuckerberg and Dorsey and, and the other principals in a room and get them to agree that they've all made enough money on these misadventures and just pull the plug on these platforms, I'm not so crazy as to think anyone would ever agree to do that given the bad incentives involved. But if that were possible, would that be a corrective or are we past a point where that's even the full scope of the problem? I don't, I absolutely think the social media platforms have a lot to answer for, not least because as we've seen, they're not compelled to act until it's too late to the extent where, you know, social media platforms have actually been used to incite genocide. For example, in Myanmar, a country where we went from very limited information as the military junta had complete control over what its populace knew, what it was allowed to see from the outside world to 2014 when it suddenly opened up and all of a sudden Burmese citizens were allowed to use the internet and smartphones and social media. And Facebook became the internet in Burma. And very quickly, it became the site of very dark sectarian, well, historical sectarian battle between the ethnic Rohingya and the majority Buddhist population to the extent where Facebook was used to incite genocide by the sharing of manipulated media, disinformation, to the extent where the United Nations has said that, you know, Facebook helped facilitate this. So absolutely, the social media platforms have a lot to do with this. But I actually think it's bigger than that. I think we have to conceptualize that as one data point in the changing information ecosystem itself. And I talk about the architecture of the information ecosystem. Broadly speaking, I'm speaking about the internet, the social media platforms, and smartphones. Because something that we don't think about is how the half of the world, which isn't plugged into this information ecosystem yet, right? Primarily in Africa and in Asia, primarily in India, is soon about to join. And the potential consequences when they enter this corrupt information ecosystem with no safeguards, I mean, at least in Western democratic society, we still have fact checkers, we still have credible journalists, we still have opposition politicians who can say things without the fear of losing their lives. But what happens when the other half of humanity enters this information ecosystem? And then the bigger point, again, that I make with my book when I talk about deep fakes is what happens next when in the next, well, not next five years, starting now, this ecosystem is imbued and full of synthetic media. So social media platforms are part of the problem, but we have a much bigger problem here. And I think that is the information ecosystem itself. Well, um, Nina, it's been a barrel of laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> I, I look forward to uh, our next conversation when we, uh, maybe maybe the, the third, the second conversation will be us trying to prove that we were not the two people in the deep fake podcast who appeared to have joined the <laughs> QAnon cult, and there's no digital watermark that can save us. But after that, I, I hope to get to a time where we can talk about purely positive things in English, because that's the only language in which I am, I am competent. But, but uh, <laughs> it's amazing to meet you, and it's amazing to meet somebody who seems so well-placed to cover the, the topics you're covering. I mean, you really, you, you are a woman who's 
appears to be quite equal to the moment. So keep going. It's, uh, it's very inspiring to see what you're doing. Thank you, Sam.